Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 18. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, the father-in-law of Moses, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. And Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, took Zipporah, the wife of Moses, after he had sent her away, and her two sons, of whom the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, came with his sons and his wife to Moses into the wilderness where he was encamped at the Mount of God. And he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, have come to you and your wife and her two sons with her. And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and did obeisance and kissed him. And they asked each other of their peace and they came into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the travail that had come upon them by the way and how Yahweh delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness that Yahweh had done to Israel, in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods, yea, in the thing in which they dealt proudly against them. And Jethro, the father-in-law of Moses, took an ascension offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came and all the elders of Israel to eat bread with the father-in-law of Moses before God. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood about Moses from the morning unto the evening. And when the father-in-law of Moses saw all that he did with the people, he said, What is this thing that you do with the people? Why do you sit yourself alone and all the people stand about you from morning unto evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When a thing befalls them, they come to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. And the father-in-law of Moses said to him, The thing that you do is not good. You will surely wear away both you and this people that is with you. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to perform it yourself alone. Hearken now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and may God be with you. You be for the people over against God, and you bring the things to God, and you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and shall show them the way in which they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover, you shall provide out of all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating unjust gain, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons, and it shall be that every great thing they shall bring to you, but every small thing they shall judge themselves. And it shall be lighter for you, and they shall bear it with you. If you shall do this thing, and God commands you so, then you shall be able to endure, and this people also shall go to their place in peace. And Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law, and did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel, and made them heads over the peoples, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And they judged the people at all seasons." 
the hard things they would bring to Moses, and every small thing they would judge themselves. And Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way into his own land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would direct us in your word, indeed, that you would teach us your statutes and your laws this day, that your spirit would help us to these ends, that you would impress your word evermore upon our hearts and our lives, that we would think rightly about you and the world that you have made and our calling in it, and that you would help us to these ends by the Holy Spirit. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When I mentioned the word sequel... I'd imagine that many of you immediately think of the movie industry and where there's one movie made and then a second one eventually comes out and is considered a sequel. And there are times when it takes a while for the sequel to be produced. For instance, Pixar's The Incredibles was released in 2004 and Incredibles 2 wasn't in theaters until 2018. So 14 years passed between the movies, which is a pretty long time. While it hasn't been 14 years since we were last in Exodus, it has been over a month. And here at the outset, we should understand that chapter 18 serves as a sequel, as a subsequent development of what took place in chapter 17, particularly in relation to verses 8 through 16, where the war with Amalek is recounted. And between that account and the one we just heard, there are a number of of vocabulary and thematic comparisons and contrasts that that bear this out, uh, presenting us with a measure of literary artistry in the text. And before we briefly examine these connections, we we do well to establish uh, a bit of history in relation to Jethro, who is the key character in this chapter. And in doing so, I trust it will help us to understand this account more fully and the subsequent implications it has for the church today. Now, Jethro is not a new character in Exodus, having been introduced back in chapters 2 through 4. But we need to go farther back still to the book of Genesis. In chapter 25, in verses 1 and 2, we read, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. So Midian is connected with Abraham, and Jethro is a priest of Midian. He's a Midianite and may very well be a descendant of Abraham through Keturah. But at the very least, we should make this association between Jethro uh, and Abraham through Midian. If we jump ahead to Judges chapter 1 and verse 16 and 4.11, we find references to the Kenites who were of Jethro and were a, a subgroup of the Midianites, we might say. Or to put it another way, the Midianites associated with Jethro were called the Kenites. Then in 1 Samuel 15, a text we've noted in weeks past, we're told in verses 6 and 7, Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. So the Kenites are specifically told to disassociate with the Amalekites, to relocate so they're not killed along with Israel's enemy, 
And the reason being because the Kenites showed kindness to the people of Israel in the wilderness, which would include this episode with Jethro here, and very well uh, also refers to um, Jethro's son Hobab, who joined Israel in the wilderness and even served as a guide, according to Numbers chapter 10. Further, Midian and Amalek were near each other geographically and not so far away from the general vicinity of Rephidim and Sinai in western Arabia, where Israel is encamped. Now, that little bit of a background in place, that, that helps us, uh, I hope, to further understand the, the comparison and contrast that then takes place between the Amalekites in chapter 17 and the visit of Jethro the Kenite in, verse, uh, in chapter 18. You see, we have two sets of Gentiles, those who curse the descendants of Abraham and those who bless the descendants of Abraham. Now, let's briefly consider the connections between these two episodes. In 17.8, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. 18.5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. In 17.8, Amalek came to fight. And in 18.7, Jethro and Moses speak of shalom, of peace. It's probably translated welfare in your English Bibles. On the next day, Israel... Um, and Amalek fight, so there's a crisis. And on the next day, Moses judges the people, which presents a sort of crisis. Each crisis lasts until sundown. Moses sat for the battle with Amalek, and he sat to judge the people. Moses' hands grew heavy during the battle, and Jethro tells Moses the thing is too heavy for you in 1818. Joshua was instructed to choose men for the battle and did so. And Moses is instructed to choose men to help him judge the people and does so. And finally, perpetual war is declared against Amalek in 1716 and perpetual peace for Israel, structuring their judicial system in this fashion in 1823. Again, these texts are highly structured and Jethro the Gentile contrasts with Amalek and is presented, of course, in a positive light. Even more broadly, chapter 18, verses 1 through 2 can be thought of as an epilogue for the first half of Exodus and verses 13 to 27 as a prologue for the second half of the book of Exodus. And while the chapter neatly divides into those two sections, yet it holds up as a whole narrative marked by the arrival and then departure of Jethro. Now, a few other text-related items to note before we begin to look at the text itself. First of all, the name Jethro is used a total of seven times, and all of them within verses 1 through 12. Second, the appellation of Jethro as father-in-law is used 13 times over the course of the chapter, eight times in verses 1 through 12, and five times in verses 13 to 27. Now, the Hebrew is literally wife's father, uh, which is preferable in a more meaningful expression and conveys more uh, than the the more sterile father-in-law, but I won't belabor the point further. But even as you heard in the reading just a bit ago, or if you, you know, go back and read the chapter again, you hear father-in-law, 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 over and over and over again. That's the dominant way in which Jethro is referred to in this chapter. And again, this is intentional. And what's portrayed for us is that Jethro serves as a spiritual father to Moses and that he provides spiritual leadership. See, think about it this way. Jethro gave Zipporah to Moses. God gave Eve to Adam. See, there's a certain pattern that's that's interesting to think about. Well, what does verse 1 report 
to begin chapter 18. That Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' wife, um, Moses' wife's father, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how Yahweh had brought Israel from Egypt, out from Egypt. Jethro's identity is declared. He's the priest of Midian, and he heard what God had done and what Yahweh had done. And who is Yahweh? Yahweh is the covenant keeper. So Jethro knows Yahweh. In verses 2 through 4, we're told that Moses had sent Zipporah and her two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, uh, back to her home, which was, of course, in Midian. When this happened, we're not told, though some conjecture it was while on the way to Egypt after the encounter with Yahweh at the lodging place and the circumcision that took place. Uh, could be, but we just don't know for sure. Uh, the meaning of Gershom's name is repeated, which we learned in chapter 2. I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. But then we learn the name of the other son, Eliezer, which um, means God is help. The reference to the sword of Pharaoh likely harkens back to chapter 2 and verse 15 when Pharaoh sought to kill Moses. But now there's also a sense that it speaks to Moses and Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Moses was delivered before and ended up meeting Jethro. He experiences it first. Now, Israel has been delivered from Pharaoh and meets Jethro, creating these interesting parallels between Moses and Israel's experiences. But then what detail is explicitly given to which we need to be sure to pay attention? That Jethro came with Moses' wife and sons and met him in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now, chapter 19 will impart, uh, will begin imparting similar information as well, but it's clear that Moses is at Sinai, at Horeb, uh, which of course made a um, the mountain uh, appears significantly in chapter 3 and the episode of the burning bush. Again, and then it's uh, latent in chapter 18 are all these echoes and connections back to chapters 2 through 4. But, th- but the narrative is now building and progressing. And we need to be sure not to miss the fact that what happens in chapter 18 takes place at Sinai at the mountain of God. In verse 6, we read that Jethro sends word to Moses that he's coming with his wife and sons. And then what is Moses' response in verse 7? And Moses went out to meet his wife's father and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked a man to the other of their peace and went into the tent. Now, we already noted the theme of peace that's present in this chapter and established here. But notice that Moses bows down to Jethro. He shows him honor and deference. Also, the text is specific to say that he went into the tent. The definite article is there. Why so specific, and to what tent is it referring? Well, more than likely, the tent of meeting, which is not to be confused with the tabernacle, which wouldn't be built for about another six months. See, if we jump ahead to Exodus 33.7, we get a bit more context of how to understand this. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Again, that's, that seems to be the tent in view. And then what's recorded next in verse 8? Moses recounting to Jethro all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, which surely included the plagues, the Passover, and the Red Sea crossing, and so forth. Moses also relates to him the weariness, the hardship that found them in the way, truly the need for water and bread and how Yahweh had delivered them. And then in verse 9, what is Jethro's reaction to Moses' report? He rejoices. Uh, This Gentile, this Gentile priest rejoices for all the good that Yahweh had done in that he delivered Israel out of the hand of Egypt. Remember, the hand equals power. 
And Israel has been rescued from Pharaoh's and Egypt's power. And this leads to the priest's praise in verse 10. And Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh who delivered you from the hand of Egypt and from the hand of Pharaoh, as he delivered you from under the hand of Egypt. Now, all of this echoes things we considered throughout the plagues and the Exodus account. But notice the repetition of hand and deliverance. In fact, the word deliverance is used five times in verses 1 through 12. The first time in relation to Moses in verse 4, and then four times in the space of verses 8 to 10 in relation to Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And in a sense, this is stating the obvious, but the Holy Spirit wants you to hear this because He repeats it. And at the root of Jethro's praise is the deliverance that Yahweh wrought for Israel. See, salvation is the foundation for praise. And surely Jethro is our instructor in this as well. And certainly we see this principle applied from beginning to end in Scripture. You know, redemption renders rejoicing. Salvation results in singing. Deliverance leads to doxology. In verse 11, we're not reading about Jethro's conversion experience or that he somehow was 50-50 about Yahweh. Rather, his declaration, now I know that Yahweh is greater, is further confirmation of what he already believed. And the arrogance of the Egyptian gods has been completely upended, Yahweh having resoundedly humiliated them in all of the plagues. Then in verse 12, we come to what is arguably the climax of the first section. What is presented to us is really, it's really quite remarkable. And Jethro, uh, Jethro uh, the wise father of Moses, uh, took an ascension offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron and all the elders of Israel came to eat bread with the wise father of Moses before God. What's going on here? Well, you have Jethro, the priest, worshiping God and leading in worship for all intents and purposes. He offers an ascension offering which we read quite about uh, a bit of the quite a, about a, quite a few of those in Genesis. He also offers sacrifices which can often be a shorthand way of referring to what we later know to be the peace offerings. Now whether or not we're to understand um, that much going on here could be debated I suppose, but it certainly adds to the peace theme that's already here in the text. Still more the mention of Aaron and the elders coming and eating bread with Jethro is hardly accidental. You know, they're communing with one another, and and it appears that Jethro is the one providing the bread. Some commentators contend they ate manna, and that's a possibility, Uh, but I'm more inclined to think that Jethro brought bread with him, and it's of that bread um, of which they partake. And so here's Jethro the priest providing bread for the leadership of Israel in the wilderness by the mountain of God, and here they are eating this meal together. Now, we have all this latent symbolism in the text, and these subtle hints forward to what's to become more developed in Israel's sacrificial worship. But here they are by the mountain of God. Um, There's offerings and sacrifices being made, bread being eaten, communing together over food. Jump ahead to chapter 24. We'll encounter something similar when Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu and 70 elders go up on the mountain of, of God and eat and drink with God. But there's also a connection backward, an echo we should be hearing from from Genesis, of which this episode with Jethro should remind us. Maybe some of you already guessed it, but Jethro is like another Melchizedek. You remember that after his victory in battle against the Gentile kings, Amalek, Gentile king in chapter 17, but uh, the Gentile kings in rescuing of Lot in Genesis 14... 
Abram is met by Melchizedek, the priest king of Salem, a Gentile, but a priest of God Most High, who supplies Abram with bread and wine. And Abram shows him honor, giving him a tenth of everything. Well, notice there's a similar sequence here with Jethro. And while he's not of the line of Melchizedek, he's Melchizedekin, we could say. And just as Melchizedek is a type of Christ, so is Jethro, as he provides in this fashion. Well, that brings us to the second section of our text in verses 13 to 27. And be sure to note the explicit time reference that's given in verse 13. And on the morrow, the next day, Moses sat to judge the people and stood the people about Moses from morning until evening. So right after the events of verses 1 through 12, verse 13 and following take place, and there's even a, a nice little chiastic structure to verse 13. You have the next day and then morning and evening. That uh, kind of begins and ends. And then Moses sits to judge. And then about and around Moses um, comes next. And then you kind of have the people sort of at the center there. And in verse 14, we read that the wise father of Moses, again, he's not called Jethro, that he saw all that he, Moses, was doing for the people. And he said, What's this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Now, the word translated thing can be a bit of a catch-all word, sometimes translated thing, other times it can be translated word, and the context uh, really dictates how we should understand it, and it'll get all kinds of different translations in your English Bibles. Um, But Jethro uses it here, and he will later, uh, later on, um, and again, it, it usually gets smoothed out and, and so forth in your translation, but there's this, this word, this thing that keeps popping up that's there in the text. But Jethro sees with his eyes. You know, what are eyes in the Bible? Well, they're organs of judgment. So you see things and you make a judgment about them. And Jethro will give a judgment in verse 17. But first we need to hear Moses' explanation in answer. And Moses said to his wife's father, For the people come to me to seek, to inquire, to consult God. For when it is a dispute for them, they come to me. And I judge between a man and between his neighbor, and I cause them to know the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses is God's representative to the people. Well, that's hardly surprising, even as we've observed him acting as God for the people on other occasions, particularly in relation to the various miracles. Well, that principle is carrying over here to a degree as it relates to Moses settling disputes for the people according to the statutes of God. You know, it isn't all miracles all the time for Moses. Well, what are statutes? Well, that's, it's, there's something prescribed. And the laws here, literally Torah, means laws, directions, or instruction. And while the law hasn't been formally given yet, trusting chapter 18 isn't out of chronological sequence, Yet there's some knowledge of God's law, and Moses is the arbiter of that law. But then we come to verse 17, and what does Jethro tell Moses? Not good, the thing, what you are doing. In other words, you as the only judge, and the people standing around all day, is not good. Back in verse 9, he rejoiced over the good Yahweh had done, but now there's something that's not good. When was the last time something was not good in the Bible? When Yahweh, God says, it is not good for man to be alone in Genesis 2.18. And what comes about as a result of that? Eve. You know, there's a wedding, but what does Adam receive? A 
helper, right? Well, as we go on to read Jethro's advice, what does Moses get? A bunch of helpers. It's kind of interesting to think about all of this. Um, I'm sure there's more rabbit trails we could run down in relation to the structure of society and bridal imagery and all that, but we won't do that right now. In verse 18, Jethro goes on to say that Moses and the people are going to get worn out with this arrangement, and heavy for you is the thing. You are not able to do it alone. Again, Moses' hands were heavy in chapter 17. He needed the help of Aaron and Hur to hold them up. And now this thing of judging the people is too heavy, and once again, assistance is needed. And so in verse 19, Jethro commands Moses, Now listen to my voice, and I will give you counsel, and may God be with you. And you be for the people in front of God, and you cause to bring the things to God. So Moses is in this mediatorial role, as described again, but Jethro exhorts Moses to listen to his voice, to heed what he says, and then notice what he advises next in verse 20. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, and cause them to know them, the way in which they must walk in it, and the work, what they must do. So here's the first of two things that Moses, and by implication the others, need to do. Namely, to teach the people. Maybe that sounds obvious, and here it is plainly in the text, but the people are to know the way in which they are to walk, which of course involves obedience to God's commands, and there is work, there are deeds for them to do. You know, there's real life application for the things that they're taught. The people don't know and need to be instructed. And Moses is to take the lead in this, and by implication, again, those whom he's going to appoint to help him, and they're to educate the people regarding the statutes, the things that are prescribed, the things that they need to do, and the directions, the laws for their lives. See, and what does that lead to, and even overlapping with Pastor Shade's Sunday School this morning? Well, it leads to a self-governing people first. That's the foundation here. People knowing the law and knowing what to do, and so forth and so on. Well, all of this is true today, isn't it? That God's people need to know what He prescribes for their lives and the things they need to do in order to walk in the way and the works and deeds to which they are to be doing. And again, to state the obvious perhaps, but this isn't just an Old Testament principle, even as John writes in his first letter. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So teaching is the first thing Jethro exhorts Moses to do. What's the second? Well, settle disputes. Uh, But he's not to be the only guy to do it. There's to be a division of labor. And so Jethro counsels Moses to see from all the people, men of strength, fearing God, men of truth hating a bribe, and set over the people rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Now, the numbering that's used here has military connotations, um, which we've noted on other occasions in relation to the Exodus, but we also find this kind of imagery in the New Testament, even as Jesus in Luke 9.14, in the feeding of the 5,000, has them sit in groups of 50, which means there are about 100 groups of 50 uh, being fed out in the wilderness. Oh, there, here we go. Jesus provides bread out in the wilderness. Um, so all of these echoes and connections back to Israel's experience. The word for strength implies moral strength in this case. 
not simply men who are physically strong, and clearly these men are to be of high moral character. Because they fear God, they'll be committed to the truth and will also want the truth to be upheld and prevail, and they can't be bought. Uh, They can't be bribed, because if a judge can be bribed, then he's an unjust judge, and he won't be impartial according to the law. And these men are to take the cases that come to them, and then as Jethro goes on to explain, these men will judge the uh, cases brought to them first and help Moses bear the burden of judging the people, and if there's a really hard case, then eventually it can be appealed or brought to Moses to decide. Now, what, what kind of government is this the blueprint for here in Exodus 18. Well, it's a Republican government. Now, not in the sense of Republican Party as opposed to Democratic Party, but in the sense of a governmental structure that's founded upon the rule of law accompanied by a distribution of power. So God's law, His statutes come first, and then these various judges who help adjudicate them accordingly. It's, it's also from Exodus 18 that the, we have the foundation for Presbyterian church government, the idea of having the ability to appeal to a higher court, uh, which then also influenced the governmental structure, the Republic of the United States of America. You know, and if you pay attention to some of the rhetoric coming from uh, certain politicians, what might they be clamoring about? Well, that democracy is being threatened. Well, democracy can simply mean rule by the people. That's partially true of how our government is arranged. But democracy can also um, just mean the rule of the majority. And that can lead to disastrous results when the rule of law is abandoned. And not to get too far afield, but those who clamor, say, for the dissolution of the Electoral College fundamentally want to do away with the republic that is the United States. And to oversimplify the point a little bit, how how do we end up with this kind of representative government? and distribution of power with a foundation in the rule of law. Well, because a bunch of Presbyterians were among the founding fathers of our nation. Our court system reflects what we read here in Exodus 18, or at least it's supposed to, and it's good for us to know that. But how did the founding fathers get there? Well, because they understood the rule of law, which had been developed in England over the the centuries, founded upon God's word. I'm sure there are a number of you who can speak to this more uh, knowledgeably and eloquently than me, but how the rule of law developed in Christendom, think about that word for a minute, Christendom, Christ's domain, Christ's dominion, Christ's lordship, has its foundations all the way back when Jethro the priest visits Moses and Israel in the wilderness at the mountain of God. And those who went before us understood these principles, applied them accordingly, and has this application for all of society and really the world. Well, in verse 23, what is Jethro's concluding statement? If you do this thing and God commands you, and you will be able to stand, and also all this people to their place will go in peace. So Jethro gives a, um, a caveat that his vice is subservient to God, but if Moses takes these steps, he'll be able to stand, he'll be able to endure, and the people will go home in peace, in shalom. So decisions will be rendered more expediently, and that's better for everyone. What does or should that look like in our society? That citizens are entitled to a fair and speedy trial, right? Jethro is giving advice on how the society should be structured. And who is he? He's a priest and Moses' wife, uh, Moses' wife's father, of course. 
But surely we see a principle that Jethro's priestly function reflects the church's priestly function, providing instruction from God's word on how society is to be structured. In his rendering of judgments, perhaps we can say Moses is functioning in a kingly fashion, even as Solomon will during his reign and the hard cases that were brought to him. Well, the priest who is responsible for instruction in the word, see Malachi 2.7, instructs the king, which is fundamentally rooted in God's statutes, his law, his word. So in verses 24 to 26, Moses hears the voice of his wife's father and did all that he said and structured the rulers according, accordingly. And they brought Moses the hard things, but all the, the, the small things they judged themselves. In verse 27, and Moses sent his father, his wife's father, and he went to his, to his land. So Jethro arrived in, uh, from Midian in verse 1. Now he departs back to Midian, closing out this chapter and section. Well, what are some further implications for us or, you know, what points could we maybe return to and flesh out a bit more? Well, first, to state the obvious, we need to know the truth, to know God's Word, which means we need to be students of God's Word, reading the Word, listening to it, attending opportunities for the teaching of it, such as Sunday school, and, of course, the preaching of God's Word in worship and so forth. Um, We have so many resources uh, available to us. But we need to be steeped in Scripture. And I'm not going to apologize uh, for teaching you the Bible, for teaching you how to read the Bible, and what the implications are not only in relation to salvation, which is good and necessary, and not only in relation to your personal walk with God, which is also important, but also with a view to how God's Word impacts society. Generations before us understood this, and we need to think this way. We need to teach our children to think this way and to seek to recover the rule of law and other such principles in society or be ready when society collapses to institute such principles accordingly. But if we're not well-versed in what God's Word says and how it fits together, how it's written and the patterns we're to understand, etc., well, then our efforts will be greatly limited. So again, let us, let us be committed to all of God's Word for all of life or to be seeping down in the nooks and crannies of our lives and then inevitably finding expression in our respective callings as we serve Jesus, our Savior and King. You know, what, did, what did Jethro state would, be, would come about as a result of Moses arranging the society in this fashion? Peace. What does Paul instruct Timothy at the beginning of 1 Timothy 2? First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, that is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The rulers, the kings, the civil magistrates, including the judges, should rule in such a way that leads to peace in society. Yes, there's the evangelistic aspect of what Paul says in regards to coming to saving faith. But there's also the discipling aspect, that people would come to a knowledge of the truth, which is fundamentally found and expressed in the Word of God. And part of the implication of what Paul's saying here, and of course what we're seeing from Exodus 18, is that society should be arranged, should be ordered, so that God's people can live in such a manner as Paul describes... And the gospel and God's word shouldn't be hindered. 
And when it is, then those rulers and judges and societies can expect Jesus' opposition and judgment, whatever form that may take. But arguably, where do Paul's exhortation and Jethro's example begin? With prayer, with worship. Jethro leads in worship first. And he leads the leaders in worship, Moses, Aaron, and the elders. And these men are then to instruct the people and provide counsel for difficult situations, even as they should be men of high moral character, steeped in God's word, and who know what to do. And if the church rightly understands her calling and the holy war in which she's engaged, think back to chapter 17, and the central priority of worship, which is the chief expression of that warfare, and if the church is organized properly with leaders understanding what they're supposed to do and the kind of witness the church is to have, then that will lead to a more stable society, a society ruled by peace. You know, as goes the church, so goes the world. And while that might feel overwhelming or even discouraging given the current landscape, let us yet be hopeful, reminding ourselves of the promises of God, trusting in His Word, full of faith that He is still the Savior who is, who has, and who is able to deliver His people. And that is and ever will be cause for rejoicing. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we again, we, we give you thanks for the marvelous way in which your word is written, how you impress it upon us, and, and may you be pleased to do so uh, this day. May we find encouragement in uh, the stories that are ancient, and yet know that they um, have such contemporary things to say to us this day. We thank you for the timelessness of your word. We thank you that indeed it is the truth, indeed, and, and so we ask that you be pleased to sanctify us all the more by it and direct us in our lives to be lived unto you and for your glory as we seek first your kingdom and its righteousness. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.